Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we're going to be talking about the not-so-frozen conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh. I'm happy to welcome an all-star cast from ECFR's past and future. We have from Istanbul, Asla Aydin Tashbash, who is our expert on Turkey. From Paris, we have Niku Popescu, who is the director of ECFR's Wider Europe program and former foreign minister of Moldova and all-time expert on frozen conflicts. And from Winchester, we have Sophia Pugsley, who is the Caucasus Regional Manager at International Alert. But also, we all got to know her a few years ago when she used to work for ECFR. Thank you very much to all of you for joining. Why don't we dive straight into the heart of the conflict? Niku, why don't you tell us what's going on? Nagorno-Karabakh is one of the frozen conflicts from the post-Soviet space that's been around for a long time, but we haven't heard that much about it recently. Why is it in the news again? Well, that's one of these misnamed frozen conflicts because the conflict has not really been frozen and the situation has been tense on the ground for years and years. In a nutshell, its history is that between 1988 and 1994, there was a war between Armenia and Azerbaijan over the region of Nagorno-Karabakh, which is technically and legally part of Azerbaijan, but it was inhabited predominantly by Armenians, ethnic Armenians. In that war, Armenia defeated Azerbaijan. So Armenia has been in control of Nagorno-Karabakh, but of also eight other Azerbaijani districts where it expelled uh, ethnic Azeris and has been controlling that territory and has been using that territory as a buffer zone, a pretty militarized one to help defend Nagorno-Karabakh. For over two decades, the negotiations have been stuck. There was no progress towards the settlement of this conflict. And of course, now, as and in, in over a decade, Azerbaijan has been trying to regain initiative, has been militarizing heavily, has been investing in, in weapons acquisitions, and has been pretty open about the fact that they would like to get the conflict settlement moving in order to regain control gradually of what they consider is their territory, but if that's not possible through diplomatic means, they would be ready to use military means. So this is what we're witnessing now, is one of these instances of flare-ups where this unsolved conflict is now generating a new dynamic that is increasingly militarized and dangerous. Okay, and we'll come into some of the reasons why it's flaring up and some of the kind of bigger geopolitical changes. But Sophia, you're looking at a situation on the ground very closely. So maybe you can tell us names of these seven different... Uh, oh, oh, wow. <laughs> no, um, more seriously. <laughs> how violent is it actually at the moment? Uh, you know, how scared are people for their lives? Is it Does it feel like a war zone or is it just a few local skirmishes which aren't affecting most of the people who live there? Well, this was a bit the, the question when it, when it started last Saturday evening. I mean, how exactly, how bad is it? Because... Flare-ups in and around Nagorno-Karabakh are not a rare occurrence. Particularly, it must be said, at this time of year, they like to shoot at each other in the summer. However, I have many friends in Karabakh. I, I lived there when I worked for the Red Cross, and we work with partners on both sides of the of the conflict divide. And basically, everyone is saying that this is the worst fighting and bombing that they've seen 
since the, the early 90s, coupled with the fact now, obviously, that both sides have a much more extensive and dangerous weaponry now than they did back then. So people are pretty scared. They're putting up um, photos on social media of them in their basement. They have relatives who they're sending off to, to war. They may or may have connections or you know be able to call these relatives or not because the internet connection is not all that great on the ground so it is bad this time it's it's not just uh, another flare-up okay so i'd like to look for a bit before we come back to what's actually happening on the ground at some of the bigger geopolitical dynamics obviously there are various changes that have been going on in Azerbaijan for many years as it's got richer. I remember going around Baku with you, Niku, a long time ago and seeing all the oil money which was transforming the urban structures. And that's obviously contributed to Azeri self-confidence. There are changes in terms of how Russia is, is dealing with these things. I'd like to go into that a bit later as well. But I suppose that the most obvious change very recently has been Turkey's role. Turkey has always been on Azerbaijan's side, but President Erdogan seems to have really piled in this time round. He's described Armenia as the biggest threat to peace in the region. And there are now also rumours of Turkish military activity in the region. And this comes hot on the foot of Turkish military action in Libya and in other places. There's lots of talk of drones being used here as well. Asta, why is Turkey piling into to Azerbaijan and into this conflict? Well, it's hard to figure out why now. I, I would say that Azeris feel a window of opportunity of sorts, and Turkey is willing to support Azerbaijan. In the past, as you've said, Turkey has always been sympathetic to Azerbaijan in this conflict. But now Turkish support is more overt. Its military footprint is, is more obvious. And uh, Turkey has been working with Azerbaijan, training the Azeri military and also helping them develop defense capabilities. That is to say, exp exporting drones and um, drones have become are the basically they're the crown jewel of Turkey's new defense industry. And Azerbaijan has also been purchasing and using in this flare up uh, Turkish made drones. You know, I think also in the domestic context. Obviously, Erdogan is in a coalition with nationalists here, and there is more or less a frenzied support, uh, such an overwhelming support for the Azeri position in newscasts and sort of social media. Two states, one nation, Erdogan called it. And he said, we, have, we will make available all our resources to our Azeri brothers. And the Turkish officials are not coming out and saying that Turkey is involved in the fighting there that is left vague but it is there's no doubt about where they stand there have been reports of syrian fighters that are deployed in azerbaijan i have not been able to verify that independently although reuters and several french publications have run stories but i think you know you don't need foot soldiers in this war whether or not they're Syrians is is irrelevant but I think Turkey's own support and it's sort of the close relationship between Erdogan and Aliyev clearly and the sense that there is now the Minsk group is not really working the Americans are distracted Russians don't seem to take a very clear position uh, on the side of Armenia so the Turks clearly see a window of, of opportunity not just for Azeris to gain territory 
but also for something that would that Erdogan can uh, use domestically to rally up support, which he always needs at a time of you know declining votes. So why don't we pause a bit on the on Russia's role? Niku, it's surprising how cautious they've been. In a phone call with the Armenian Prime Minister, President Putin apparently said, according to the Kremlin's account, that it was important for them to halt military actions. To what extent is Russia involved in this? How do you think it's likely to play it? How much leverage does it have on the two sides? Maybe also, how do they regard the, the role that Turkey's playing? Technically and legally, Russia is in a military alliance with Armenia. Armenia is part of a Russian-led collective security treaty organization, and Russia, and they ha- which has a collective defense clause. So it's a bit like Article 5 in NATO. However, the provisions of the CSTO treaty and arrangements provide only for Russian security guarantees to the internationally recognized borders of Armenia, which basically excludes Nagorno-Karabakh. Now that's in theory. In practice, any tensions of that has already happened are bound to very quickly touch not just the Nagorno-Karabakh borderline, but also the internationally recognized border of Armenia. And in theory, Russia should be supporting Armenia. However, this is not happening. Russia has been trying to balance its support for Armenia with pretty good cooperation with Azerbaijan. Russia has been selling weapons to both Azerbaijan and Armenia and has been trying to keep a certain degree of neutrality between Armenia and Azerbaijan. And that, of course, is very visible from an Armenian perspective. It's also deeply outrageous to a lot of people in Armenia that Russia is not seen as standing by its ally. And even today, actually, if you look at what other powers are saying about the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, you'd see that a country like France is more critical of Turkey and Azerbaijan than Russia is, uh, even though Russia is an ally of Armenia. So all of these things are noticed on the ground. That is, of course, partly encouraging Azerbaijan and discouraging Armenia. But it also plays a bit against this wider notion that Russia has been building up its reputation as someone who stands by its allies. It stands by Assad, Haftar, you know, Maduro in Venezuela. But actually, that's not what is happening on the ground. Russia has been trying to keep a balance, has been trying to keep a certain distance between both Armenia and Azerbaijan. And in this case, the Russian position is actually quite close to what the rest of the European Union has been saying, and that that is calling for peace and for calmer dynamic between the two countries, and you know also calling on Turkey not to be so openly supportive of Azerbaijan in this context. To what extent is this going to be solved through local, regional, or international mediation. I mean, that's the work that you're doing, Sophia, International Alert, is trying to look at the situation on the ground and to see what kind of measures can be taken to de-escalate things. How much of this is going to be resolved at the kind of 30,000 foot level as opposed to, you know, by taking much more careful local measures? I mean, what kinds of things could be done to to de-escalate the crisis? Well, first and foremost, obviously, given that this is a human tragedy, I mean, we, there really is a need to, to, in some way, stop the shooting and to ensure access for humanitarian aid. I would go to this before the dialogue, because what a lot of people don't know is that there's only one humanitarian organization that even has access to Nagorno-Karabakh right now, and that's the International Red Cross. UN agencies and other humanitarian outfits 
have not had access ever at all in the, in the past, since the war in the 90s. And so this will re require a lot of diplomatic negotiations in order to get aid in. And this is important for the aid to come in from the West because it will demonstrate certain legitimacy and real Western interest and involvement in coming to some sort of resolution on this conflict. Then there will be the question of security that will come up, which will inevitably mean peacekeepers, and then which will raise the question of who's peacekeepers, not just who pays for them, that's probably the easy part, but where will, which countries will these peacekeepers come from? And that is a hugely sensitive question. But then when it comes back to dialogue, and it will come back to it, everyone on social media in the past four days has been dissing all sorts of, you know, low-level dialogue initiatives that have existed over the years at various levels. But frankly, there is no alternative and we have to go back to dialogue at various levels, even if there are no easy answers. Now, this dialogue has existed, like you say, at 30,000 feet at the Minsk group level, but it has also existed at the civil society level, which is where we operate. And for years, there have been people from Armenia, Azerbaijan and Nagorno-Karabakh engaging in joint projects and meeting and talking to each other about the conflict, but not only, but also about, you know, anything that interests them and about kind of joint exchanges. And this has actually also been happening with Armenia and Turkey. People often kind of forget that strand of dialogue because it's somehow perceived as being kind of easy and Armenians and Turks can go to each other's countries and it's all relatively easy. Whereas the real problem has, within the Karabakh conflict context has been that people, for various different reasons, cannot go to the other side, cannot physically go to the other side of, of the conflict to see how other people live. And this makes it hugely problematic to engage in dialogue because you have to constantly bring them out to third countries. And it also may, it renders it all a little bit artificial, and it means that you can only really work with small numbers of people who are willing to take the risk. And it is a kind of reputational risk to work with the other side. So having said that, it's easy to say, stop the shooting and go back to dialogue, but this isn't enough. What we need here is a real political will on the part of say, the West, whether it's the EU or Washington or whoever, a real political will to make this dialogue work and thereby to create leverage for the people themselves who are going to engage in this dialogue. And Northern Ireland in that respect is a very good example in the sense that it worked there because there was political will from also from big external actors to make it work. And conversely, now you see what happens when that political will is no longer there. The problem in the Karabakh context is that there's never been that strong political will at that level. And that makes it very difficult for ordinary people who might be interested in meeting the other side to justify even to their own friends and family, why am I going to meet the, the enemy? It's, it's really hard. And it's hard in particular for young people who have grown up now having never lived with the other side. And they just have no concept of the fact that on the other side of those World War One-like trenches, there are people who are, you know, very similar to them and who have the same hopes, dreams and interests as they do. To come to a concrete point on the dialogue, uh, one suggestion that has been put about as a, as a kind of starting point, given that this is a, a kind of a conflict that is dealt with by the OSCE, would be to come back and finally convene that Minsk conference that was promised in 92 and then never happened, because that would convene the enlarged Minsk group and not just the three co-chairs. 
and that could be a starting point and then you might go back to some way presumably having to discuss the famous Madrid principles which have been around forever and everyone's bored of them but they do discuss the fundamental questions about land security status and return of displaced people 1 million displaced people everyone is sick of discussing these questions but there has to be a you know constructive dialogue around them so i like to unpack a lot of those things the the mince process the osce the madrid principles but in a way if we've been talking about this at any point over the last sort of you know 15 years or so a lot of those things would have come up what i suppose maybe before we go into that would be interesting to explore is is what has changed one of the things which has changed is the fact that there used to be a different balance of power between armenia and Azerbaijan and uh, the oil revenues and gas revenues that Azerbaijan has had for a long period of time have led to a, a kind of massive power transition in the region. And if Russia is not playing the role that the Armenians hoped it would as, as its kind of guarantor and is hedging in the way that it is at the moment, and Turkey's going on one side, I mean, why would Azerbaijan see dialogue as a solution? Surely there is a prospect of actually just reclaiming the territory. Yes, that's partly happening because Azerbaijan no longer sees that dialogue leads anywhere. There are, as you know, Sofia mentioned, these so-called Madrid principles. On paper, they look good, but for over 10 years... Why don't you say what the Madrid principles... Yeah, so the Madrid principles are based around six points. One is the return of territories surrounding Nagorno-Karabakh to Azerbaijani control. Some kind of interim status for Nagorno-Karabakh with a postponement on a decision on its status. Now, the granting of a corridor linking Armenia to Nagorno-Karabakh, the right of internally of IDPs and refugees to return to their places of residence, previous residence, and some kind of international security guarantees, including a peacekeeping force. Now, on paper, everyone agrees to them, but for over a decade, there has not been much progress towards their implementation. And the reasons are, you know, there's plenty of reasons for that. But one of them, if you allow me to come, you know, to one of the dictums of conflict resolution that has been stated by the former chief negotiator of the conflict settlement process in Northern Ireland, Jonathan Powell, who has been behind the Good Friday Agreement, he's saying that, you know, countries don't have an incentive or parties to a conflict do not have an incentive to compromise unless the status quo is painful enough to them. What we have between Armenia and Azerbaijan is a status quo that is not very painful to Armenia in the short term. For Armenia, the current situation in the short term is quite comfortable. It controls Nagorno-Karabakh as a big enough buffer zone, and Armenia has not been willing to budge and to make compromises towards, you know, giving up control of some territories. On the Azerbaijani side, they feel they are stronger than 20 years ago or 10 years ago. Negotiations are not leading anywhere, so they are trying to shake the tree, fire up and try and you know, change the dynamic in the negotiations. They've tried this first by showing much bigger levels of defense spending. That seems not to have been enough. And now they are engaging in this periodic, you know, few days wars. And my fear is that we this is not the last short-term, short war that we're witnessing. So on the one hand, Azerbaijan would not have an incentive to engage in a major war, but such flare-ups, wars lasting three, four, five, or ten days, have happened with increasing frequency, if you want, in the last six years. And they are likely to happen. And Azerbaijan's 
stake an interest in doing that is partly to try and recapture some territory through salami tactics military action, or at least forcing Armenia into being more compromising in the diplomatic talks. So this is not a war for the sake of war. It's also tied to an attempt to re-energize the negotiation process. Yeah, I mean, Nico, I agree. I really wouldn't underestimate the level of frustration that there is among ordinary people on the on the Azerbaijan side. And I think we saw this in July when there were demonstrations in Baku and they broke into government buildings. And you don't normally see that kind of stuff in Baku. But I mean, tensions and emotions have been running pretty high recently. And what you say about the status quo is unfortunately very true. How does this also play into some of the the wider geopolitical issues? I mean, the Turkey-Russia relationship, we've talked about lots, Asla, is a very complicated relationship. Is some of this also about changing the balance of power between Russia and Turkey? Well, I'm not quite sure that Turkey and Russia are on the opposing sides. Initially, when fighting broke up, much of the analysis was about, oh, here is yet a third war in which Turkey and Russia are fighting on the opposite sides, Libya and Syria being the other two. As of yet, that's not been the case. And my sense is that we might see a whole lot more in terms of Turkish-Russian diplomacy at the end, in terms of how this conflict ends. Maybe perhaps something, another Russian-led Astana process, as opposed to all the other multilateral frameworks that we're accustomed to in this conflict. But uh, Russians have, they may not be entirely comfortable with a heavier Turkish footprint, At the end of the day, my sense is that Turkey and Russia value their relationship so much that they know how they they avoid actions that would damage the relationship. In other words, they they sort of come to the brink of it, but pull back. And in this instance, I think Russians have also been lately over the past years, have also been somewhat annoyed with the government in Armenia, Pashinyan coming into power in 2018, almost after a street revolution. And by now we know that they do not like that kind of stuff in Kremlin. So, uh, you know, there is going to be, it's not a a case in which Turkey and Russia are entirely opposing one another. Uh, And on the diplomatic front, I wouldn't rule out a new Astana framework. So we haven't mentioned the EU yet. We've been talking about this for a long time. Sophia was talking in quite bold terms about the role that the international community could play. We heard from Charles Michel on Sunday that the different parties should immediately return to negotiations. And Joseph Borrell also put out an official statement calling for an immediate cessation of hostilities. Is there a role for the EU in this, Niku? The role for the European Union is very limited. Again, on paper, the EU and most of the EU member states and Russia and the United States agree on these Madrid principles. On paper, the way towards a solution over Nagorno-Karabakh and the occupied territories looks more or less straightforward, but the foreign powers do not have the leverage to impose it on either Armenia or Azerbaijan. Both countries think and feel that this conflict is a life and death issue for their states, for their societies, 
And the foreign powers, including the EU, have very little way of altering that calculation. So actually, the European Union's leverage is very, very small. It's practically non-existent. Now, in theory, and again, over some 15 years ago, I think the European Union expressed its readiness to send peacekeepers to end around Nagorno-Karabakh should Armenia and Azerbaijan uh, require such an international help. But of course, without the two sides agreeing, the EU's offer has been left hanging for almost 15 years now. And beyond that, I don't see uh, the European Union being really in a position to do more than just diplomatic pressure without anything that significantly alters the calculation of either Armenia or Azerbaijan. So we're coming to the end of our of our time now. Are there things which you think could be done now to help move things in the right way? Is there a role for the OSCE, for example? We've talked about that in the context of different conflicts. And when we're talking about Belarus, for example, there's hope that they could play a useful role there. Are they going to be able to to help at least de-escalate things in the short term? Well, the OSCE, I mean, are the ones obviously who are mandated to. I mean, they're the ones who've always taken the lead on this conflict and the the EU has always said that they support the OSCE Minsk Group and has always had a much lower profile political role in this conflict compared, if you like, to the conflict over Abkhazia, where the EU special representative actually sits in the Geneva talks and it's all quite different there. But then all these conflicts around unrecognized entities should all be treated in a, in a very different way because the, the attitudes of the local and external actors in each one of them is very different. The EU has been supporting civil society dialogue for 10 years now. And before that, it was actually London through the Foreign Office as well. So, And this was Armenia-Azerbaijan and again, Armenia-Turkey, because I think there's a lot of work, a lot of damage that needs to be repaired there as well. That kind of work, unpopular and unsexy though it is, needs to continue. But the the political will to underpin the dialogue also needs to be there. And I understand why Niku is um, a bit pessimistic about it. But I think there are a lot of people who are watching and waiting, you know, to see the EU step up in what is, you know, its eastern neighbourhood. It has a neighbourhood policy. It has an interest. I know that membership um, prospects of membership are a long way off, so you don't have the same leverage like you do in the Balkans. This is the issue. But I think people are certainly expecting more from the EU at a kind of a higher level dialogue. I am afraid that the only thing that could help everyone avoid a future flare-up or several such flare-ups is if the negotiations start moving somewhere and Azerbaijan starts regaining some control of some of the seven districts through negotiations. That's increasingly difficult. I don't see now the parameters being in place for negotiations to start yielding these results, which makes it very likely that Azerbaijan will continue trying to regain some territory through physical force and through military action. So we face this risk. We might lead to a situation where after several other such flare-ups in the next five or ten years, the balance of power between the sides will change and either it will such actions will become too painful for Azerbaijan to continue doing or too painful for Armenia to defend the status quo. But we're either going to see several more small wars or if negotiations start moving somewhere, perhaps these wars can be avoided. Well, that's quite a sobering place to end the discussion. There's one thing left to do on this podcast, and that's our bookshelf segment. 
Asa, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Well, Mark, it wasn't too long ago that we talked about another conflict Turkey is involved in, in East Med. So I'm afraid the more embroiled Turkey gets in regional conflicts, uh, the more I want to escape. So I'm still reading my Neapolitan novels onto a new one by Elena Ferrante, the second book, Story of a New Name. It's a very tense country to live in and a difficult place to live in. Uh, and so these novels just allow me, help me escape sometimes. Okay, what's on your bookshelf at the moment, Sophia? Well, while I, I understand Asla's desire to get away from the conflict, I'd like to recommend two things, if I may cheat a little bit, about this conflict. One of them is a publication called Envisioning Peace, which we put out recently, and it's an analysis of what ordinary people in this conflict context think, because you always talk about the dialogue at the high level, but no one actually asks ordinary people. So that's one thing. And then the second thing that I recommend to you, and I'll send you the link, is actually a film called Parts of a Circle, which tells the story of the conflict in the 90s. And it has a lot of original footage. And it's interesting because it's a joint production by Armenian and Azerbaijani filmmakers. Great. And what's on your bookshelf, Niku? While Asle has been trying to escape, I have been increasingly drawn to reading more in Turkey and the region. And I use summer holidays to read books which are above 500 pages. So one of these books which has been waiting for almost a year for my summer holiday to be read is a book called Osman's Dream, The History of the Ottoman Empire, written by Caroline Finkel. I've, I've gone through all the 700 pages or so. And another kind of supportive reading to that is another very interesting book also related to the Ottoman Empire. Partly it's called Biography of an Empire, Governing Ottomans in an Age of Revolution. And it's about a fascinating character called Stefanos Vogoridis, who was born Bulgarian, got Hellenized, became Greek in Romania, in what is today Romania. He was governor of Moldova and Wallachia. And then ended up being a very senior Turkish Ottoman diplomat and parliamentarian in the mid, in the first half of the 19th century. Fascinating story. Fantastic. And I've just got a book in the post which looks really interesting. I'm looking forward to reading it by Ian Baruma called The Churchill Complex, The Rise and Fall of the Special Relationship. And it looks like a really, really fascinating and gripping narrative by a wonderful essayist who, in fact, we might even invite onto the podcast to talk about it. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please do let other people know about it by writing on your social media feed or on ours and hopefully also by heading to whatever platform you've used to download the podcast on and giving us a five star rating and a positive review it would make a big difference to us it helps other people find the podcast and makes it all worthwhile for us so please do do that we will put links up to all of our publications that we've mentioned and all the book recommendations on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts but for now from Asla Adintashbash, Sophia Pugsley, Niku Popescu and myself Mark Leonard it's goodbye. The researcher of this podcast is Lucy Halpenthal and our editor is Marlene Riedel. <laughs>